and a very warm welcome to 20 Minutes With, a podcast brought to you by Proximo, a leading source of news and data for the project finance, energy and infrastructure industry. My name is Thomas Hopkins and I am Deputy Editor of Proximo. On this episode, Proximo brings you 20 Minutes With Antonio Cravo, a Vice President in Power and Infrastructure Finance at Investec. Now, Antonio is going to be discussing the intricacies of the UK's fibre-to-the-home pipeline, including the future direction of FTTH as a project finance asset class and any risks that the sector might pose to lenders. Um, Antonio, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much for kindly uh, inviting me uh, today. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Yeah, it's brilliant to have you on. Um, Perhaps before we begin, you could just tell me a little bit about your sort of professional background and some of the work that you do at Investec. Sure. So uh, I'm part of the uh, power and infrastructure team uh, at Investec, um, which is uh, a sector-focused group looking across the entire power uh, and infra spectrum. From a geographical perspective, we cover the UK and Europe here out of London, and we also have another team uh, in New York covering the North American markets. Um, we are a product uh, agnostic team, which means that we can um, deliver optimal financing solutions for clients independently of where we sit in the capital structure. And we can do both uh, lending and uh, advisory mandates. Thanks so much, Antonio. And I've obviously got some uh, questions lined up for you just to sort of, you know, do a general kind of background discussion into the sort of UK fiber market. So if we can get cracking with some of those, that would be, that would be great. With an, an initial question, how established, in your view, has FTTH become as a project finance asset class in, in the UK? So, Thomas, uh, I, I think it is fair to say that fiber to the home or fiber to the premises is now a, a very well established project finance asset class uh, in the UK. Um, and this is because over the last two years, uh, we have seen uh, companies from all sizes raising significant amounts uh, of senior project finance debt. Uh, to fund their rollout plans. Uh, for example, in 2022, so far, more than 6 billion have been raised by the UK outnets. Um, although I would say that a large part of that can be attributed to a mega deal that was closed this summer. But perhaps uh, more importantly, um, I would say that lenders uh, these days, they have a very good understanding of the sector, uh, including its risks uh, and respective uh, mitigants. And critically, financing structures uh, have converged to a common set of terms that are now uh, applied uh, across all transactions, almost without uh, uh, any exception. So I think, um, although it has taken time to, to take off, and uh, I think that the pandemic played a critical role in, um, in contributing to the acceleration of the sector, I think we can only say that fiber to the home has now established itself as an asset class that uh, project finance lenders are comfortable to have in their portfolios. Thanks, Antonio. And I think that sort of, that kind of helps to s- set the scene, I think, a little bit as to where we're kind of entering this discussion in terms of how established FTTH is as a, as a kind of sector. Um, just to give some more detail, perhaps for listeners who might be sort of more or less familiar with the UK market, um, is the UK fibre market generally driven exclusively by private developers rather than by a sort of centralised government entity? Yes, so the market is mainly led by uh, private developers, and these are the so-called alternative network providers or uh, outnets, as people call them. And at the moment, there are more than 100 outnets uh, in the UK, which is an absolutely staggering number. Um, 
would say that this market-led approach was mainly driven by the uh, the UK government, um, uh, their plans to accelerate fiber rollouts and to achieve a full fiber coverage in the UK uh, by the end of this decade. So what Ofcom, the UK uh, regulator, did was to uh, implement policies that were designed to encourage private companies to build uh, their own networks instead of relying on open reach network open reach is the is the incumbent uh, infrastructure provider and um, i mean without getting into um, uh, too technical details a key component of these policies was a, a regime called a physical infrastructure asset access or pia which essentially allows allows these outnets to use uh, open reach networks so think about the ducts and poles there are on our streets and um, these outnets are able to lay their own fiber infrastructure using an open reach network without having to uh, spend capital uh, digging their own ducts to lay their own cables. So I would say that this was a critical move to unleash the wave of outnet investment that we're seeing today. Um, I'll just mention that in rural areas uh, where obviously capex per premise passed is typically higher, we still see significant levels of private investment. But this investment is also backed by subsidy schemes uh, run by the UK government, such as the 5 billion uh, project gigabit. So in summary, yes, I mean, the UK fiber market is, is absolutely led by, uh, by private capital, but uh, government intervention, either through regulation or through uh, subsidies, I think it has played a pivotal role in the landscape that we are seeing today. Thanks very much, Antonio. I'm, I'm, I'm interested to sort of follow up on this point when we compare the UK to a couple of other markets. So I wondered how the UK compared in terms of being led by private development um, in relation to markets such as France or Germany. Is there a slightly more centralized approach in some of those other markets? So I think that's that's an interesting question, Thomas. Uh, and, and just before getting into the comparisons, I think it's important for people to understand the, the fundamentals here. So the UK and Germany, and this is data for, from the end of last year, so, so bear with me, um, but the UK and Germany have the lowest fiber to the home coverage uh, in Western Europe, and that's 27 and, and 22% respectively. Now to put these figures into context, the, UE, the European Union average as of end of last year again, it was 57% and France had 67% fiber to the home coverage which is three times higher than that of the UK. Uh, and, and the reason for this is simply because the French government started tackling this problem much earlier uh, at the beginning of the, the last decade, to be precise, uh, than the UK and the German governments. So uh, moving to France, what the government did was to adopt a more interventive approach, which has seen the country being divided in zones. So in the, in the areas that are uh, less densely populated, i.e. The, the rural areas, the government provided companies with long-term concessions uh, in exchange for minimum targets being achieved in terms of uh, uh, homes passed. And conversely, at the other side of the spectrum, for areas that are more densely populated, they have favored a more market-driven approach similar to what we're seeing in the UK. Now, uh, moving to Germany, I think the market there is, is quite similar to what we see uh, in the UK in the sense that government intervention is limited to the attribution of subsidies uh, for rollouts in, uh, in, in rural areas. However, that there are some nuances, some, some key differences. And one that I would highlight is that uh, many outlets, for example, they employ uh, pre-marketing activities to get a number of subscriptions um, uh, signed on before the rollout properly starts. 
and what it does is to understand it ensures a minimum penetration level from, from the outset, which substantially de-risks uh, their business plans, which obviously is, is music to the ears of, of, of lenders. So I think this, this is quite something, uh, it's something quite different, quite innovative that we don't see uh, in the UK market so often. Thank you very much. And I, I think it's very useful to be able to understand the way in which these different markets have functions. Thanks for clarifying that. Um, just moving back to the UK, and where we've got this sort of very kind of private sector-led um, industry for fibre, how important do you think first mover advantage is for, for fibre developers in the UK? Yeah, uh, I would say, uh, Thomas, it, it's absolutely critical. And, and it's probably the, the single most important commercial driver behind the wave of alt-net investments that we are seeing in the UK at the moment. If, if we just think about this, um, for a second, uh, by being the first providers to offer fiber to the home connectivity in a, new, a given area, it means that those companies are able to market uh, that product to a captive customer base, almost on an exclusive basis. And hence they are able to gain a large market share from the beginning. What this does is to create an immediate entry barrier for other competitors as the economics of overbuilding the incumbent will be questionable even though this is happening in more densely uh, populated centers like London, for example, so there is evidence about that. Um, but, it, but if you think about a more specific case, which is um, the situation, and it's probably this example is easy to understand. If you think about the case of multi-dwelling units, MDUs, uh, and just think about apartment blocks for simpli simplification purposes, um, here the first movers have an even more pronounced hedge over the second comers. Uh, and since the fiber rollouts and these buildings are negotiated under way leave agreements between fiber to the home providers and landlords, and these agreements can take years to negotiate. It's often common to hear one, two, three years to, for these agreements to get signed. And often landlords are not keen to allow more than one provider to install fiber across their premises because of the disruption that it causes and the bureaucracy involved, etc. And what it does, it, it gives the players that are able to you know, pass this hurdle and get the way leaves agreement signed, it gives them a de facto exclusivity position over that customer base. And that's why we see uh, for, for MDU um, rollouts, we, we see penetration levels that are much higher than what we see for SDUs, for example. So yes, I would say just as a summary, being the first mover provides a huge advantage to any old net. Thank you. And, and, and just thinking, obviously, about fiber development being slightly different in urban and rural areas, as you mentioned earlier. Um, from a lender's perspective, what are some of the different risks if you're looking to sort of back a kind of fiber rollout that is that is urban versus rural? Um, you know, I, I'm just interested in sort of the, the different considerations that lenders might have to have in those scenarios in, in the UK. Sure. So uh, I think the main risk is related to CAPEX. Um, and capex overruns. So uh, rural areas are more sparsely populated and hence the capex per homes passed is significantly higher. It can be in fact up to 10 times higher when compared to uh, urban rollouts. Um, and it, I think this is something that is not very difficult to understand, but when you are laying a cable in, um, in a busy uh, city center like London, for example, uh, that's, uh, that kilometer of cable laid will pass by a huge number of properties. and Conversely, if you move to a, a rural setting where houses are most, more distant from each other, that same kilometer of fiber will probably pass by three, four houses at best. So you'll have to spend a lot more capital in order to achieve the same number of, of premises passed. So that's why the capex is higher in, in, in rural uh, rollouts. 
and then there are also other risks that are uh, somehow interlinked. So the deployment pace can can be lower when compared to um, uh, to urban developments, and that's because um, the infrastructure might not might simply not be available there. And I'm thinking about the ducts and poles from from open reach. Uh, which are commonly found uh, in uh, in city centers, but in in rural settings, uh, uh, sometimes they are simply not there. Uh, so companies need to be a more, bit more creative in terms of the routes that they take. Um, and then there are other risks like competing wireless technologies for like 5G, for example, which can be more appealing to um, to uh, rural uh, households. Um, but there are also upsides, I would say. It's not all, only about risks. So um, conversely, competition levels are much lower in rural settings, which reduces the risk of overbuild. And what this does for the companies that are successful here in these, um, in these areas, it creates quasi-monopolistic positions for, uh, for those first movers, uh, which really favors higher penetration levels. So I think, in essence, for rural developments, there are different risks that lenders will have to consider, but there are also opportunities for the companies who are successful here, and obviously for the lenders who, who back them up. Yeah, thank you, Antonio. I, and also just, just following up on some of your points there, I mean, I know sort of historically, rural fiber development might have been considered really quite risky because of these sort of capex overruns and that sort of thing. But has it actually become more attractive to lenders in recent years, do you think? Yeah, look, I would say on a selective basis, yes, although the levels of liquidity available are much lower when compared to uh, urban focused outnets. Um, on the deals that are being done, we still see um, a level of government involvement on the lending side. And the most notable example is uh, the involvement of the UK Infrastructure Bank, who um, it's in the public domain, has participated in some, uh, in some deals recently. Um, I would also mention that uh, for pure play uh, rural focused outnets, lenders don't like to see a huge reliance being placed on government subsidies, and they prefer to back companies uh, whose business model are, is more resilient and better equipped to deal um, with the risks posed by, uh, by rural rollouts. Of course, the fact that these companies benefit from subsidies is a plus, but uh, lenders like to, um, to see these companies being able to stand on, on, on their own without relying on the government support. Um, I think that lenders may also be uh, reluctant to back up players who don't have a proven track record of network deployment and those who cannot demonstrate uh, healthy penetration levels. So um, uh, I don't think you'll see a lot of lenders backing up players uh, like they did on, uh, on, on urban rollouts, which had like very little uh, uh, homes passed and very few homes connected. I think in for for rural settings, it's more important to demonstrate that the companies have actually met uh, their the KPIs that they promised. Um, so, I mean, overall, I think yes, we are seeing more deals being done in this space, but the vol the volume is is nowhere comparable to the urban outnets. And uh, just thinking about the structure of the financings that we've seen for uh, UK fibre. I mean, having covered a couple of these for Proximo, I have seen sort of the five to seven year kind of hard mini perm structure be incredibly common. And, you know, obviously I understand there are reasons why that might be attractive from a, from a lender's perspective. Um, do you think that the UK market is set to sort of continue with this kind of hard mini perm structure? Um, and the reason I ask that is, are, are we seeing any other markets that are perhaps slightly more developed than the UK? Um, that are starting to see sort of longer term debt? Yeah, that's a very uh, interesting question, Thomas. So uh, 
the hard mini perm structure is a structure that fits very well uh, with the business model and the risks of, of the outnets. Um, uh, given that the large majority of these companies are, are still in its growth phase, um, the mini perm structure gives them room to fund their rollout program and to scale up their businesses before they have to start worrying uh, about repaying their debt, which usually takes the, um, the shape of, uh, of a refinancing. Uh, so obviously the drawback here is that these structures have relatively short tenors, uh, so five, seven years is, is what is common. And therefore, companies need to optimize their capital structure a lot more frequently um, than other companies do in other infra infrastructure sectors. Um, I think unless we start seeing business models that are underpinned by off-take contracts with internet service providers that cover penetration risk to a large extent for a good number of years, I think it will be hard to completely move away from the mini perm model. And, and to be honest, you know, the wholesale agreements that we've seen uh, with ISPs, they have a, a relatively short duration and they cannot be, the level of protection that they offer, it's nowhere comparable with, um, you know, a 15, 20 year PPA, um, uh, just drawing a parallel with the, with the power sector. Um, so, so yeah, I think it will be difficult uh, to see the sector moving away from the mini pump structure and to start Tackle, uh, tapping into long-term debt, and also as you as you mentioned in your question, if you look at what is happening in in, in other markets, yes, we are seeing uh, outnets, uh, the large ones raising multi-billion debt packages with uh, more than one tranche. Uh, this often comprises term loans, capex facilities, and RCS for general co corporate purposes. But if you look at the detail, in essence, uh, these tranches are still mini perms. Um, so. Um, you know, I think in essence, um, this what this tells us is that the market still sees the same type of risks in these businesses, despite uh, some of these outnets having achieved a significant critical mass when compared to um, to their peers. All right, and just uh, also, I suppose, following up on something that you've just said in relation to the size of the different financings, um, obviously, as you mentioned, we have seen some fairly large kind of multi-billion euro financings in, in markets like France and Germany. Um, and as I understand it, I mean, I, obviously, I think there's there's one big deal this year that uh, that might be an exception here. But in the UK, we've tended to see sort of slightly smaller um, financings. And do you think that the UK might be starting to shift towards some of the larger financings we're seeing in other markets? Um, and if not, perhaps what might be required for UK FTTH financings to kind of attain the size of some of those seen in, in France and Germany? Yeah, I think that that's a very interesting topic. Um, and I think um, this question goes hand in hand with uh, the, the topic of outnet consolidation, which is a very, a very popular discussion in the UK at the moment. Um, I think what's going to happen is that lenders will start naturally uh, gravitating towards the players with the more developed networks those who have demonstrated their ability to ramp up their uh, deployment plans and to achieve um, penetration levels in line with their business plans. And this is something that we are seeing already to some extent uh, in, the, in the UK uh, bank market. When you compare uh, UK, France and Germany, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I think that the French market is slightly different than the other two, given the level of government intervention, the concession regime, etc. So I would not necessarily compare uh, uh, France with UK and Germany, but if you just look at uh, UK and, and Germany, uh, if you if you look at the large outnet financings that have been done in these markets over the last two years, and 
the best examples is of course uh, city fiber in the uk uh, this year and the deutsche glass Faser that was closed last year those were the, the largest deals done in these two uh, uh, markets these both of these outnets they have um they have they have rollout plans that are very, very mature compared to the other ones. And they have shown a positive track record, both in terms of deployment pace and customer acquisition. So what we're seeing here is basically just lenders gravitating towards the best players. In other words, they are backing the best horses because they expect that consolidation will also happen. So I think my expectation is that this consolidation movement uh, will start taking place uh, in, in the short terms. Uh, companies will become bigger by virtue of the businesses that they will start acquiring and the financing quantums that they raise in the debt market will naturally increase as well. So I think we'll see more of these city fiber deals being done in the UK over, over, over um, during the course of the next two years, for sure. That is certainly very interesting to know, and we'll definitely keep an eye on that space at Proximo. Um, Antonio, I'm very sorry to say that that is all the time we have for today, but thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. Uh, Thomas, the pleasure it, it was, was mine. Thank you very much for, for having me today. Yes, it's certainly been a fascinating discussion. Um, before we end, I would just like to take a moment to remind listeners to sign up for Proximo's webinar on stadium finance, which is taking place on 10 November. A panel of industry experts will discuss topics such as financial market conditions for stadium and team owners and the best revenue mix for successful financings. More details can be found on our website at proximoinfra.com. Thanks to everyone for listening to today's podcast, and please join us again in two weeks' time for more interviews from across the project finance, energy, and infrastructure space. Mm -hmm.